Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The sound of silence. The lead starts right now. Republican officials largely publicly silent after Trump hosted and dined with two notorious anti-Semites at Mar-a-Lago. Trump so far has not publicly condemned either man's bigoted views. I'll ask a top House Republican about the actions of the party's de facto leader and more as the GOP readies a host of new investigations. Plus, mass defiance against the Chinese government. Protests not seen on this scale since 1989's Tiananmen Square. Demonstrations against new COVID restrictions in China. We'll have a report live from Beijing and we'll talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci about China's overly restrictive rules. And a deadly act of online catfishing involving a former state trooper, a teenage girl who was horribly duped, and a deadly ending. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Nearly one week after Donald Trump dined at Mar-a-Lago with openly anti-Semitic Holocaust denier and white nationalist Nick Fuentes, along with another anti-Semite, rapper Kanye West, also known as Ye, not only has Mr. Trump not publicly condemned Fuentes or his sick ideology, or yes, the number of Republican officials willing to publicly criticize Fuentes by name or Trump for meeting and helping to mainstream him remains, shall we say, rather small. I reached out to the offices of a few top Republican congressional leaders today. None, none offered comment. A few Republicans have publicly condemned Trump's actions, Congress Members Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, Senators Bill Cassidy and Susan Collins among them. But Trump is the only declared Republican 2024 presidential candidate, and he remains the presidential frontrunner for his party. And only a couple possible 2024 rivals have criticized Trump's move. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and this man, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. We need to avoid those kinds of empowering the extremes. And when you meet with people, you empower. And that's what you have to avoid. You want to diminish their strength, not empower them. Fuentes is certainly at the extremes in addition to spewing racist, sexist garbage. He has a history of denying the Holocaust. Once, comparing the Jews, brutally murdered, to cookies in an oven. It takes one hour to cook a batch of cookies, and you have 15 ovens, probably in four different kitchens, right? Doing 24 hours a day, every day for five years. How long would it take you to make six million? Hmm, I don't know. It certainly wouldn't be five years, right? Uh, The math doesn't seem to add up there. When I reached out to Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel to comment on Trump dining with that man earlier today, McDaniel had an aide send me a boilerplate condemnation, which mentions no names. It says, quote, as I have repeatedly said, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, hate speech and bigotry are not disgusting, are not are disgusting and do not have a home in the Republican Party, unquote. Do not have a home in the Republican Party. Would that it were so. 
Fuentes had a white nationalist conference earlier this year, attended by at least two sitting Republican members of Congress, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And at that conference, Fuentes said this. Now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin is Hitler, and they say that's not a good thing. And <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Vladimir Putin is Hitler, and they say that's not a good thing. I shouldn't have said that. Congresswoman Taylor Greene, we just learned in campaign finance reports, paid more than $37,000 to Gab in the 2022 election cycle. Gab, if you do not know, is the fringe social media platform, very popular with the alt-right and, yes, with neo-Nazis, run by an unrepentant anti-Semite named Andrew Torba. And, of course, this is the same woman who once suggested wildfires in California were started by space lasers controlled by any number of prominent Jews. Marjorie Taylor Greene also recently hired notorious anti-Semite Milo Yiannopoulos as a summer intern. That was just a few months ago. But I digress. You know, there's so many anti-Semites accepted in public life these days, it's easy to do that. Back to the story at hand, responding to Trump's claim that he did not know Fuentes before their two-hour-long dinner, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro said yesterday, quote, a good way not to accidentally dine with a vile racist and anti-Semite you don't know is not to dine with a vile racist and anti-Semite you do know. That's a reference to Ye, of course. Many of Trump's Jewish supporters seem quite shaken today. Trump's former ambassador to Israel David Friedman tweeted yesterday, quote, to my friend Donald Trump, you are better than this. Even a social visit from an anti-Semite like Kanye West and human scum like Nick Fuentes is unacceptable. I urge you to throw the bums out, disavow them and relegate them to the dustbin of history where they belong, unquote. Trump has not done that. Former Trump State Department official Elon Carr tweeted today, quote, no responsible American and certainly no former president should be cavorting with the likes of Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. To placate anti-Semitism is to promote anti-Semitism. President Trump must condemn these dangerous men and their disgusting and un-American views, unquote. And again, Donald Trump has not done that, nor have we heard any Republican congressional leaders do that publicly or by name, the RNC chair, who insists there is no home for this kind of hate in the GOP. To hear Ye and Fuentes tell it, they feel quite at home. The folks who don't like anti-Semitism, they're the ones who seem uncomfortable. CNN's Sunland Sarfati starts off our coverage today with a closer look at how such spreaders of, of hate ended up dining with the former commander-in-chief. Backlash and criticism, as only a small handful of Republicans are speaking out on the former president's actions, while the party's top leaders in Congress stay silent. I don't think it's a good idea for a a leader that's setting an example for the country or the party to meet with avowed uh, racist or anti-Semite. West's recent anti-Semitic remarks caused companies that he was affiliated with, including Adidas and Balenciaga, to drop him from their brands. Fuentes is a 24-year-old Holocaust denier who espouses racist rhetoric on his podcast. Nick Fuentes is a racist and anti-Semite and someone who revels in just saying hateful, bigoted things against Jews and other minorities. Fuentes was also on the grounds of the Capitol on January 6, prompting the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack to issue Fuentes a subpoena in January. It's incredibly poor judgment, and I think that ever since the election in 2020, I think the president's descended deeper into heart of darkness here. 
In a post on his true social platform Friday, Trump denied knowing Fuentes, writing West unexpectedly showed up with three of his friends who I knew nothing about. The dinner was quick and uneventful. So Trump is really impressed with Nick Fuentes. And Nick Fuentes, unlike so many of the lawyers and so many people that he was left with on his 2020 campaign, he's actually a loyalist. A source told CNN that Trump found Fuentes, quote, very interesting. Particularly Fuentes' ability to rattle off statistics and his knowledge of Trump world. At one point during the dinner, Trump declared he liked Fuentes. According to that same source, the dinner grew tense at various times, including when West, who recently launched his own presidential bid, asked Trump to join his 2024 campaign ticket as his vice president. President Joe Biden, who is still weighing whether he will seek re-election in 2024, responded to the dinner from Nantucket over the weekend. Mr. President, what do you think of Donald Trump having dinner with the white nationalists? What do you think of that, sir? You don't want to hear what I think. And as Republican leaders in Congress remain silent, Democrats are certainly trying to draw attention to this. Just a short time ago, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer blasted Trump in his dinner from the floor of the Senate. Schumer saying that it is disgusting and dangerous and says that Trump giving an anti-Semite even the smallest platform, much less an audience over dinner, is pure evil. And Schumer, Jake, called on both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to condemn the former president. All right, Sondland Sarfati, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, among other matters, Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky. He is the ranking member and soon will be the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. And Congressman, I, I know you want to talk about your investigations, and I do want to get to those uh, priorities on the Oversight Committee in, in a moment. But when asked about Trump's meeting with Kanye West and, and Nick Fuentes, you said yesterday, quote, well, he certainly needs better judgment in who he dines with, unquote. I, I have to say, that's not the strongest condemnation of a Holocaust denier that I've ever heard, Congressman. Well, obviously I condemn it and I can shed some light on why Republicans don't immediately respond to many in the media every time uh, they're offended by something Trump does is because a lot of Republicans believe there's a double standard in the media. Uh, We've seen things that Ilhan Omar has said. Uh, We don't get asked if we condemn that by the the mainstream media. So I, I believe that's one reason Republicans haven't responded. But obviously uh, it was a meeting he never should have had. And uh, I don't know what else you can say about it. Uh, That's an issue that uh, I think uh, will probably be something that the president will have to talk about as the presidential primaries uh, begin and uh, really get uh, revved up. Well, I I think Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar's comments, uh, they a lot of Democrats were asked about their comments, not Republicans. And that was a that was a big kerfuffle at the time. Um, In any case, I don't think you can compare either of those congresswomen to Nick Fuentes. But let us turn to the subject at hand which is your priorities when Republicans take over the House. You're going to be the chairman of the mm-hmm. House Oversight Committee. You said you're going to investigate 40 to 50 different, different topics. You've also said your focus will be, uh, inc- among other things, investigating uh, fraud when it comes to pandemic funding, uh, border security, mm-hmm. Ukraine funding, and more. All very worthy right. subjects for congressional oversight. How do you, as chairman, make sure that your hearings will be effective and serious and impactful on the American people at large and not just opportunities for some of your members uh- to, you know, stage performance art for for fringes? Well, that's a great question and a very fair question. We get asked that a lot. And that's a a challenge for me. I want to bring 
credibility back to the House Oversight Committee. Uh, we want to go back to our original mission of rooting out waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in the federal government. A lot of the work we will do will be conducted uh, in the form of uh, doing depositions and transcribed interviews. And that's a very fair process because the Democrats on the committee, whomever uh, the, the minority leader will be, will appoint the makeup of the 20, I would assume, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee. They will be allowed and their staff will be allowed to sit in on the depositions and the interviews. And I think that uh, the most productive part of a lot of our investigations will be made uh, during the, the deposition and, and the interview process. Now for committee hearings, we want our committee hearings to be substantive. Uh, we're gonna be very active in the subcommittee process. A lot of the, the stuff that the media will find less glamorous, but I think the taxpayers will be uh, most impressed with will be done in the subcommittee process. You mean the waste, fraud, and abuse, the idea of government funds being misused or stolen. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you you go back three years and Jake, that spans two administrations. Just in the name of COVID, Congress has spent a, a record amount of money, uh, trillions of dollars. And we believe hundreds of billions, if not more, has been wasted. If you look at the unemployment insurance funds, uh, we believe that uh, as much as 25 to 30 percent of that went to fraudulent people, fraudulent accounts, many of it to foreign countries that had hacked into state unemployment systems. Uh, we believe that a lot of the PPP loan money went to fraudulent companies and certainly went to companies that, that should have never been eligible for a PPP loan to begin with. And remember, 99 percent of those loans didn't have to be paid back. So they call it a PPP loan. It was a, essentially a PPP grant. Right. Uh, we're concerned about that. We, we don't believe there's been a lot of oversight, overspending in the last two years, especially now with Ukraine spending. Uh, we have a lot of questions about exactly where that money's going in Ukraine. So these are the challenges that we're going to face as a committee. And we know that the media is going to be watching us and we're going to try to be transparent with, with what we do and try to be fair. Um, just on the matter of the border crisis, and it is a crisis at the border without question, mm -hmm. isn't the right. larger solution, and I know this is not your issue as oversight chairman, but, but as a member of Congress, it's your issue, isn't the larger solution to security issues at the border a comprehensive bill that updates the laws, beefs up security, and also is able to get 60 votes in the Senate and President Biden's signature, meaning some sort of compromise that includes, includes tougher at the border measures that you want, but... but a willingness to sit down with Democrats. Is that not the ultimate way to solve this problem? Well, it, it, it is. I mean, at the end of the day, even though we have a Republican majority in the House, it's still going to take 60 votes to pass a bill through the Senate. And regardless of what happens in Georgia, we're going to need nine or 10 Republican votes or, or 11 Republican votes in, in the Senate to be able to pass legislation. Uh, we want to put pressure on this administration to act on day one with respect to securing the border. We believe that the fentanyl crisis in America uh, can be scaled way back if we control our southern border, because that's where most of the fentanyl is coming across. So uh, we've got very uh, high priority on crime in America. That's something that we campaigned on in, during the midterms. We believe that uh, we need to focus on funding our law enforcement. We need to focus on uh, tougher, tougher laws to uh, and, and try to hold prosecutors accountable. But we also need to focus on securing the southern border. And that's going to be one of the investigations Kevin McCarthy put in the hands of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees as far as holding hearings on what Mayorkas has done or, or failed to do with respect to border security. All right. Uh, soon to be Oversight Committee uh, Chairman, Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky. Thanks so much for coming on. I uh, look forward to having you back, sir.
Thanks for having me, Jay. Coming up next, Dr. Anthony Fauci responds to what the Chinese government is saying and its strict COVID restrictions that have sparked outrage and protest. Plus, as holiday shopping kicks into high gear, the warning for more than 400 business groups and what could be a major economic disruption in the coming days. Plus, the nerve-wracking rescue 100 feet in the air. Stay with us. In our health lead, remarkable pictures of the widespread protests across China over the weekend in city after city, including Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong, Chinese citizens took to the streets to defy the government's zero COVID policy of lockdowns to, in their view, prevent the virus from spreading. These protests come as China records its highest number of daily local COVID cases for the sixth consecutive day. And joining us now to talk about this and much more, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is getting ready to retire after 38 years as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Thanks so much for being here. we got a lot to talk about, but I do want to talk about what we're seeing from these images from China. You've called China's, the Chinese government's response to COVID severe and draconian. The China's official news agency today published an op-ed asserting that the country's strict COVID measures are scientific and effective. Are, are they? Well, when you want to shut down uh, in order to interrupt immediately a process that's going on, like the spread of infection, there should be a purpose to it. Like you want to make sure you get enough ventilators or enough PPE, or you want to get your population vaccinated. The comment that I made about their severe uh, um, actions that they've taken is that you have to have an end game. What's the purpose? If the purpose is let's get all the people vaccinated, particularly the elderly, then okay for a temporary period of time to do that. But they have very, very strict type of a lockdown. They're locking people in their homes, which is really, they can't even go out and, from what I hear, shop or walk a dog or something like that. That's going to create a lot of pushback on the part of the population if there's no underlying purpose of what you want to do. Well, they say that they're doing it, and obviously I'm not here to defend the Chinese government, but they say they're doing it just to stop the spread, right? Yeah. I mean, it, but is that even effective well, is there, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis? Well, if you stop the spread, but don't put into place something that will protect you when you open up, when you open up, you're going to wind up getting spread. So again, get to the point that when you're talking about shutting things down, it should always be a temporary phenomenon, not a long-range strategy, but you should do it with a purpose in mind to allow you to open. And the best purpose is, while you're shutting down, get as many people vaccinated as you possibly can with a good vaccine. Well, they don't have a good and vaccine, right? That's, that's the my, point. That's but my they, next question. They exactly. have their own COVID vaccine. It's not effective or not as effective. Do you think that uh, Pfizer and uh, other U.S. companies uh, should make Uh, Western vaccines more available uh, for the people of China? You know, Jake, as far as I know, it is it is available. I think it might be the other side of their not wanting to utilize those vaccines. I don't think there's any lack of availability, but I I can't say for sure. But I don't think that that's the case. You've been sounding the alarm on the triple threat right now in the United States, and that's covid. It's obviously seasonal flu time and also the respiratory threat from the RSV uh, virus. Uh, what do people out there watching need to do, uh, especially the most vulnerable, beyond getting the flu shot and the latest COVID booster, which you will be happy to hear I, I got last week? I'm glad to hear that. Well, you just said the two most important things. So you have three diseases that are co-circulating. We have very good vaccines against two of those. 
respiratory syncytial virus, which is predominantly uh, most dangerous to children five years of age and younger and to the elderly, it's common respiratory hygiene and common sense when you're dealing with RSV because we don't have a vaccine yet. Hopefully within a reasonable time, we will have one. But right now, we don't have a vaccine. So what you do is that, for example, the kinds of things we've always spoken about with respiratory illnesses, wash your hands. If you're having a cold or it looks like you're sniffing or coughing, stay away from children. Or if children are sick like that, try to keep them away from the elderly so you don't get the spread of infection. So um, we have a lot of parents on our staff, and and, uh, one of them tells us that there's a shortage of Tamiflu, uh, which is needed to treat people who have flu, and also a shortage of amoxicillin, which uh, treats other seasonal seasonal illnesses. Um, When is that going to be fixed? Well, I hope soon. I mean, that's one of the things that COVID has contributed to is supply chain difficulties. There are things where you would, under normal circumstances, have easy access to them that you're out. That, that is a consequence of the kinds of negative offshoots and collateral damages of COVID, that the supply chain is interrupted. And you mentioned two important drugs, Tamiflu against influenza and amoxicillin against common bacterial infections. So um, Republicans are taking over the House of Representatives, which means there's going to be a lot of oversight hearings. Earlier in the program, we heard from uh, the the soon-to-be chairman of the Oversight Committee. Uh, And obviously, they're going to hold hearings on the origins of COVID. Uh, You have said that you think that it is likely that it was a natural development from animal to to human, uh, but that your mind is open about it possibly being from a lab leak. Uh, And and the investigation is going to be about specifically uh, whether there's any connection if there was a lab leak, to U.S. investments uh, in virus research at the Wuhan uh, lab. Uh, it's possible, right? I mean, well, well, it's possible that there's a lab leak. But if you look at the viruses that the NIH funded, and it was a very small grant, $120,000, $130,000 a year, uh, granting to study bat viruses in a surveillance way to see what's out there, if you look at those viruses and you look at the, the, what was done with the viruses, it would be essentially molecularly impossible for those viruses to turn into SARS-CoV-2 mm-hmm. because they were so evolutionarily distant that I can't tell you what's going on in all of China and in other things, but right. I can tell you for sure that if you look at the viruses that the NIH grant funded to study in a surveillance way, Anybody who even has a peripheral understanding of evolutionary virology will tell you these viruses could not possibly turn into SARS-CoV-2. So when you talk about a leak, maybe there's a lab leak, but it's not with the viruses that the NIH was funding. That's almost certain that that's the case. So what lessons uh, have you personally learned about the pandemic response? I ask not to point fingers, but because obviously it's possible, likely even, that there will be another pandemic uh, what is something that, that you wish, if you could go back in time, you could have done differently? Um, for example, I know you and I talked in 2020 about, and you said on the show that the last thing that should be closed is the schools. Right. The last thing. Do you wish that you had made that argument more forcefully uh, behind the scenes? I mean, what are some th- lessons you've learned? Well, you know, the, the lessons are that when you're dealing with a moving target, as this was, and, and, and Jake, you've been through this with us, you know, what we knew in January was very different from what we knew at the end of January, the beginning of February, and then very different from March as you learned more and more 
you know, hopefully we could have been more on top of appreciating the dynamic nature of how things change, thinking that it wasn't aerosol spread in the beginning, and then you find out it is aerosol spread, thinking that, well, symptomatic people spread it, and then you find out that 50 to 60% of the transmissions occur from someone who has no symptoms. So it's a moving target. We just need to be much more flexible. And when we make a statement to the public, even though we try as best as can, make sure you emphasize that it is a moving target because when people hear you say something in January based on data that are clear in January, if you come back in March, the data are much, much different and may make you change your mind. And when that happens, people say, well, what's going on with these scientists? They're flip-flopping, they're changing their mind. It's that the data are evolving in a very dynamic way. A very important lesson uh, that we all uh, experienced. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, and thanks so much for all your service and everything you've done for our country. Uh, Any hint as to what's next for you? Not yet. I hope to find out soon, but I'm not making any kinds of negotiations until after I step down at the end of December. But you'll probably next spring take in a Yankee game or two, I would guess. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to guess. I think you're right on that one, Jake. All right. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Coming up, a disturbing case of online catfishing. A teenage girl sexually exploited and a former state trooper who traveled across the United States to be with her. How the girl's family ended up dead in this gruesome ordeal. That's next. In our national lead, a former Virginia state trooper murdered a teenager's family and then set fire to their home, according to police in Riverside, California. As CNN's Camila Bernal reports, authorities say this tragic story began when the man first met the girl online and obtained her personal information by deceiving her with a false identity, a process known as catfishing. Police say the call came in just after 11 o'clock Friday morning, asking for a welfare check after a teenage girl, appearing to be distressed, was seen near a car with a man. Then 911 dispatchers received multiple calls about a fire in the same neighborhood. They found three people deceased inside the house. The three victims, the girl's mother and grandparents. We had a grandmother, a grandfather and a mother of this teen murdered by this suspect who, who travels from across the country um, for most likely would be the sexual exploitation of this teenager. According to law enforcement, this is a case of catfishing, a situation where someone pretends to be a different person than they actually are for the purpose of someone exploiting another person. The suspect, 28-year-old Austin Lee Edwards, developed an online relationship with the teen, then traveled across the country from Virginia to Riverside, California, to find her. We do know that there was some direct messaging, text messaging going on. The suspect turned out to be in law enforcement, a person who was going through orientation to be a patrol officer with the Washington County Sheriff's Department just four days before the murders and was a former Virginia State Trooper, according to police. More than two hours after Edwards drove off with the teenage girl, Police tracked them and says Edwards fired shots at sheriff's deputies during a pursuit. When he lost control of the vehicle, the teenager fled the car and Edwards pointed a gun at the sheriff's helicopter before deputies shot and killed him. This is just a very tragic example of how dangerous 
those interactions can be. The teenager in this case was unharmed and is now in protective custody, according to police, who say they now worry Edwards may have targeted more catfishing victims. It's hard to believe someone who's going to travel all the way across the country, kill a grandfather, a grandmother, and a mother of the teenager he's trying to uh, sexually exploit, that he hasn't engaged in similar type of behavior before. Now, police say that the fire started at the house here behind me was intentional, but they also say they don't think the mother and the grandparents died of smoke inhalation. Now, as to why this man was a deputy, the sheriff in Washington County saying that he reached out to former employees, including state police, and there was nothing that came back negative, so they still hired him. Jake. All right, Camila Bernal in Riverside, California. Thanks so much. First uproar over the flag, then something the U.S. team captain said. Iran hitting back at the World Cup while looking past its much larger problems at home. Stay with us. The sports lead, Iran, is once again demanding that the U.S. be kicked out of the World Cup tournament. That's after the U.S. Soccer Federation used an image of an Iranian flag that had been scrubbed of the repressive Islamic regime's emblem on U.S. social media platforms. Pretty brittle for a regime that shoots kids in the street. CNN's Don Riddell is in Qatar, and Kylie Atwood is at the State Department. And Don, uh, today the manager of the U.S. team stopped short of apologizing. That's right. He didn't apologize. Uh, the uh, director of communications for the U.S. Soccer Federation said that they wanted to make a gesture that would show they were uh, supportive of the women protesting in Iran. But that moment has become a 48-hour kind of diplomatic uh, situation. Uh, The American players have spent the last 24 hours uh, trying to focus on the game, but they have reiterated that they are very supportive of women's rights, whilst at the meantime they know that the Iranian coach and Iranian media are throwing shade at them, highlighting the state of the United States as a country, talking about the gun violence epidemic and the culture of racism. This is what the young American captain Tyler Adams had to say about that, but first, In the question that he was asked, he was told how to say Iran. Many Americans call it Iran. He was told pretty bluntly, it's Iran. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, Yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, You know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. The American players, Jake, finding themselves in a pretty sticky, tricky situation, but it's nothing compared to what the Iranian players are dealing with. Of course, the protests back home, are they sympathetic? Are they pro-regime? A lot of questions being asked about that. The Iranian team really in an impossible situation. And Kylie, uh, the, the State Department, which has previously expressed support for protesters in Iran, they're also weighing in on this controversy. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, well, the State Department said that there was no coordination between the U.S. government and U.S. soccer when it came to uh, putting up this altered Iranian flag. But they are doubling down on their support for these Iranian protesters, saying that the Biden administration continues to find ways to support these protesters in the face of these violent crackdowns. They've done that rhetorically with President Biden voicing his support, the Secretary of State voicing support. Of course, the sanctions that we have seen on the Iranian morality police and those who have been involved in these violent crackdowns. But for now, they're saying that they're looking forward to a game tomorrow that they hope is peaceful and competitive. And we shouldn't expect that there are going to be Iranian uh, delegation officials and U.S. diplomats who actually run into each other at these games because there isn't going to be an official U.S. delegation at the games tomorrow. We saw an official delegation at the first U.S. soccer game last week in the World Cup. There was no official delegation at the U.S.-U.K. game uh, last week, and there's no official delegation to the U.S.-Iran game tomorrow. All right, Kylie Atwood and Don Riddell, thanks to both of you. Turning to our money lead, if this year's holiday shopping season is a test for the U.S. economy, the report card is so far looking good. Black Friday sales online alone hit a record $9.1 billion. That's up more than 2% from last year. And today's Cyber Monday sales are expected to top $11 billion, up 5% from last year, according to Adobe Analytics. But there is, of course, a caveat And let's bring in CNN's Mark Stewart for that. Mark, these holiday shopping numbers are not as impressive once you factor in inflation. Uh, Inflation, Jake, indeed. I was messaging one of my sources about this. We were going back and forth today about this. And yes, these headlines seem impressive, but really, if you look beneath the surface, it may not be as rosy as it seems. These sales numbers are elevated because everything indeed costs more. And we're not just talking about the products themselves. If you're a retailer, chances are you are having to pay more for labor, for people to work at your store. That's a sign of inflation. In addition, moving products from point A to point B during parts of the year, we saw very high fuel prices. That can have an impact as well. So perhaps some some caution before celebrating these, these, these sales figures. Something else that I think is also important to point out is that a very large number of Americans this year made purchases using credit cards and through buy now, pay later services. There should be some caution associated with this, especially as interest rates continue to rise. Depending on what happens next year, if Americans default on these purchases, they don't pay on time. It can have some very severe consequences, Jake, at a time when the economy is still very fragile. Yeah, and and Mark, more than 400 business groups are warning Congress that a looming rail strike could not only upend holiday shopping, but cause chaos for the U.S. economy as early as next week. Tell us more about that. Right. If you look at the rail lines, you could think of them as the arteries, if you will, of the American economy. It's how things get from point A to point B. Depending on what happens, it certainly could impact us and our ability to travel. But we depend on rail lines to bring chlorine to different communities to make sure they have purified water. We need it to move fertilizer. So there are all of these these different uh, factors that that rail touches our lives. Not to mention food transport. In fact, in that letter you mentioned, uh, there is concern that these disruptions could impact the transport of 6,300 carloads of food and farm products every day. So we're not just talking about Christmas and holiday shopping. We're talking about the groceries that we need every day for our pantries. All right, Mark Stewart, thanks so much for that report. Just in the urgent warning before a small plane crashed into those power lines. You can hear it for yourself. That's next. International lead moments before a private airplane crashed into power lines in Maryland last night. Air traffic controllers 
urgently warned the pilot that in their view he was flying too low. It took rescue crews eight hours to save the pilot and the passenger. And as CNN's Pete Montine reports, power was out for tens of thousands of citizens of Maryland as the delicate mission played out. Firefighters are calling it a high-stakes rescue from high-voltage power lines. Two people on board this private airplane survived this crash, only to remain trapped 100 feet up as crews de-energized the wires. This is you know, a challenging uh, event, of course. It's like a car crash you know, up in the air. The crash caused power outages for 120,000 people in the blink of an eye. I saw like two big flashes. I thought, oh, it's just lightning. But the rescue of pilot and passenger took hour after cold hour. Pepco power crews, along with firefighters from Maryland and D.C., responded to the scene, reassuring the pilot and passenger over the phone. They were anxious. They were concerned about the stability of the aircraft, the stability of the aircraft remaining in the tower structure. The pilot and passenger were carefully loaded into a specialized 178-foot cherry picker, then lowered to the ground. The 65-year-old man and 66-year-old woman were rushed to a hospital with hypothermia. The crash took place in the dark, only a mile from the flight's destination, the Montgomery County Air Park. The single-engine Mooney apparently aligned for landing on the southeast-facing runway. But moments before the crash, air traffic controllers warned the pilot that he was getting too low. And a low altitude alert, small altimeter is 2944. The weather at the time of the crash was reported as low clouds and bad visibility. Just one of the factors the National Transportation Safety Board will be considering as they start this investigation. So I'm just really happy that, you know, this hasn't been a tragedy. Ask yourself what it would be like in a car to hit a wall at 80 to 100 miles an hour. I'd say pretty lucky. We are just learning from firefighters that one of the survivors in this crash has now been released from the hospital. Firefighters also point out one extra piece of luck here. The plane first sliced through the power lines and then hit that transmission tower. They're saying it is incredible, Jake, that nobody here was electrocuted. All right, Pete Montine in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Thanks so much for, to, to you for that. Coming up, what the Biden administration is telling Americans in China as the revolt in the streets there against COVID restrictions play out. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, thousands of college students returned to campus in Idaho with a killer still on the loose. It has been two weeks since four students there were murdered and still no arrests, no suspect name, no weapon found. What is being done to keep the community safe there? Plus, voters heading to the polls in Georgia again. We're just over a week away from the Georgia Senate runoff between Herschel Walker and incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, and things are getting even nastier than they were. And leading this hour, a rare uprising in China. Thousands of Chinese citizens defying the Chinese government in the most widespread demonstrations seen since Tiananmen Square in in, in 1989. Fueled by three years of China's oppressive zero COVID policy, including snap lockdowns, weeks of forced isolation, a hampered economy, and widespread censorship. And most recently, a deadly Apartment fire in northwest China. Videos showing COVID lockdown barricades likely blocked firefighters from reaching the building where 10 people burned alive. CNN's Selena Wang is in Beijing for us where citizens have clearly reached their limit. They 
chant, Xi Jinping stepped down, an extraordinary show of defiance in China. In Shanghai, they chant for freedom, democracy, and end to COVID lockdowns. Even targeting the Communist Party and the Supreme Leader himself. Unprecedented protests are erupting across China, from major metropolises to elite college campuses, even far-flung cities. Searing nationwide anger, triggered by a deadly fire in China's far west Xinjiang region. Water unable to actually reach the fire blazing from the high floor of the apartment building. Videos indicate COVID restrictions prevented fire trucks from getting close enough, apparently blocked by fences and metal barriers normally used during lockdowns. In the building's chat group, a mother pleads, help us, my kids are dying, we don't have enough oxygen. At least 10 people died. The nation, grieving the deaths of victims that likely spent the last months of their lives trapped in that building. Most of Xinjiang has been locked down for more than 100 days. The protests even spilling into the capital. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests, they want freedom. And many people are also holding white papers in their hands, which is a sign of solidarity against censorship. They sing and cheer, shout to be unsealed, and some even break down into tears. A man with a loudspeaker shouts, we always support the Communist Party, but we want democracy and freedom. I asked a protester how he was feeling. Overwhelmed, he said. All conscientious Chinese people should come here and stand together. I said, you realize there's a risk being here. Of course there is, he responded. And if we just turn the camera around, you'll see there is a row of police. Hours later, masses of police filed in, pushing the protesters back. Demonstrators shout towards the authorities, we are not your enemy. We are in this together. These are unbelievable scenes in China, where public criticism of the party can lead to prison time or even worse. In Shanghai, police arrested, roughed up protesters, violently dragging them into cars. No protests of this scale, demanding political reforms, have been seen since the Tiananmen pro-democracy protests in 1989 that led to a massacre of unarmed protesters. These demonstrators know what they're risking, but they're determined to make their voices heard. And Jake, at that Sunday night protest in Shanghai, police arrested a BBC journalist. He was held for several hours before being released. And the BBC said journalist Ed Lawrence was beaten and kicked during his arrest. Videos show him being led away by police officers while he shouts, call the consulate now. And it wasn't just him. A journalist with Swiss broadcaster RTS was also briefly detained while reporting live from Shanghai. The protest I witnessed was peaceful, but that's not happening in all the cities, Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing for us. Thank you so much.
Americans in China, it's time to stock up on at least two weeks of food, water, and medicine and prepare for possible family separations. That message comes from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, where diplomats say they have regularly raised concerns about the harsh COVID restrictions to the Chinese government leaders. Let's bring in CNN's newly promoted chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly. Uh, Chief, are, are White House officials supportive of the Chinese protesters? You know, Jake, it's important to look at the language and what they're specifically saying here because it tells a story. That story is that there's some caution as they watch what's going on on the ground. And they've made very clear they're watching very closely what's happening on the ground in China and that they support the right of the Chinese people to peacefully protest, also continuing to raise questions about that viability of the zero COVID policy that China has pursued. However, they are not echoing some of the things that we've heard from protesters, particularly as it pertains to Chinese leader Xi Jinping. They're also not trying to get in front of anything that they've seen on the ground. And in part, that has something to do with what we saw just a couple of weeks ago. President Biden sitting down with Xi Jinping, the first uh, in-person meeting since his administration began, and securing some concrete, if small, steps forward to try and ramp down tensions between the two countries, the two most powerful countries in the world. As things go forward, uh, White House spokesman John Kirby said earlier today at the briefing, they are going to be watching things very closely. They don't have any Uh, great information, more so than we've seen on social media, than everybody is watching at this point in time. I asked Kirby if the results of that bilateral meeting would have any effect on the U.S. approach to these protests going forward. And Kirby made clear they want to keep in place the steps they were able to take, particularly communication channels between the two sides that they were able to secure during that meeting as to what would happen if there was a harsher crackdown. Kirby said only that they were going to continue to watch closely and see what happens going forward, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Robert Daly. He is the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Uh, Robert, you served as a U.S. diplomat in Beijing. Uh, I'm wondering, from your perspective, since Tiananmen Square, have you seen protests like this in China? Some citizens going as far as calling for political reform? There are many protests in China every year. Sometimes there are tens of thousands, but they're all small and local. They have to do with things like uh, land use rights or prices or local government abuse. This is the first time since Tiananmen that there have been national protests. They're not really nationwide. They're in about 16 different provinces about one issue. They're not yet on anything like the Tiananmen protests in 1989, however. How long do you think this uh, uprising will last, continue, considering the Chinese government's relentless uh, censorship policies, not to mention the crackdowns? Well, the discontent and the anger that's reflected are continual and probably growing. But the protests are not ongoing. Uh, To the best of our knowledge, there were no protests in any of these sites on Monday. The police presence is large. Some of the uh, sites, for example, in Shanghai, where the protests had been some of the loudest, have been walled off. And so as of Monday, there was nothing. And of course, once uh, protests like this lose momentum, it gets that much tougher to start up again because now the government is more prepared. So we don't yet know whether this was a weekend of demonstrations or something that can be sustained. Top U.S. health officials say the the long-term lockdown is not an effective public health strategy. Of course, Chinese officials insist that their zero COVID strategy is, quote, scientific and effective. In the last hour, we heard... uh, Dr. Fauci talk about why this doesn't make sense unless it's being done for a particular purpose. Why why do you think she is so stubbornly clinging on to this policy? 
Well, both Chinese and foreign, including American immunologists, have said that if China had an America-like regime, that would probably result in about 1.5 million Chinese deaths. And she has said that he is not willing to do that, that he is willing to harm the economy to save lives. And that has been part of his claim, not just to domestic legitimacy within China, but it's been part of his claim to provide wise governance that should give him a table in international decision-making bodies as well. So the effects of zero COVID, it's both about the Communist Party's legitimacy at home, but also about its claim for influence worldwide. Well, you heard Fauci also say in the, in the previous hour uh, that the Chinese are too proud to ask for help when it comes to getting a more effective vaccine, that one of the problems in China is that their vaccine is no good compared to the Pfizer vaccine or Moderna, for example. Yes, that's true. And when about two years ago, China was in negotiations with the Europeans to get Pfizer and Moderna in, China insisted as a condition that the Europeans also license China's not very good jabs. There's also an element of nationalist pride in this. Given the friction between the United States and China, what really amounts to a kind of new Cold War, Xi Jinping does not want the Chinese lives to be saved by Western or American medicine. We're also seeing protesters in Hong Kong holding up uh, blank white, piece, uh, white sheets of paper, uh, which symbolizes the oppressive censorship uh, in China, that, that nothing's written on there and that that's all that needs to be said. You've said China is moving from authoritarianism to techno-totalitarianism. Uh, tell us what that means and, and what does a fully censored Chinese society look like? Xi Jinping is now using uh, ubiquitous uh, high vision cameras all over China, which are linked up uh, to artificial intelligence systems. He's using big data such that they can look at a crowd in China, scan a crowd with a camera, who's there, know who they're speaking to on their social media, know where they live, uh, know what they buy. And they are also getting involved in what's called predictive policing looking at things like uh, posture and other physical signals that somebody might be seen as dangerous to really exercise ever more total control over China. That's what I mean by techno-totalitarianism. It's the surveillance state. It's one of the things that the Chinese are quite fed up with. They're afraid that post-COVID, the government will continue to track their actions as they have during the pandemic, although not this time for the sake of their health, uh, but just to make sure that they are you know, towing the party line. So many American companies and corporations are in bed with the Chinese government because they want that Chinese money, whether it's uh, Disney or, or the NBA uh, or I could go on and on. Is there anything you think that we as consumers uh, could be doing to help the protesters when it comes to protesting ourselves, the companies that go along with us? Well, uh, boycotts historically almost never work. Uh, South Africa and apartheid is, is the one exception that proves the rule there. Uh, American consumers, had they wanted to vote with their pocketbooks against Chinese actions, have had many, many chances to do so after the past several years, as, as you've just mentioned, and they haven't done it. Uh, it would really take uh, pressure from the Beijing government or from Washington for increasing decoupling uh, for countries to reassess their profitability in China, the, boy, the American consumers probably can't do it. And we have to be a little careful. Uh, the more support Americans show for the protests, which again, may already have ended, we don't know yet. The more support we show, the more credibility we give to China's leaders who will say, 
This has all been orchestrated by outsiders and there's a color revolution fomented by the United States, which is what they say about uh, Hong Kong, what they've said about other places within China. And so we don't want to give credibility to that. Uh, Phil Mattingly just mentioned the caution of the White House. I don't think it's just about upholding agreements that Biden and Xi Jinping reached in Indonesia. It's also about not appearing uh, to be behind these protests, because mm -hmm. that's something that Beijing would use instantly as a weapon against these demonstrators. All right, Robert Daly, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the Russians are gone, but the pain and suffering is far from over. What life is like for the Ukrainians returning to newly liberated Kherson? Then, the suspect in that racist Buffalo grocery store shooting rampage appears in court today. What that means for his sentence. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. The U.S. State Department says that Russia has, quote, unilaterally decided to delay key nuclear arms control talks with the U.S. with no specific reason cited. While over the weekend, mothers of Russian soldiers launched a brave anti-war petition inside Russia, tired of what Putin calls a special operation, which in their words has brought only, quote, grief, blood, and tears. CNN's Matthew Chance traveled to the recently liberated region of Kherson in southern Ukraine under heavy missile fire from Russia just weeks after Russia's humiliating defeat. The devastation Russia's retreating forces left behind. A village in southern Ukraine torn to shreds and until now abandoned to this war. Valery told me he's lived here 51 years and after evacuating for eight months, is home to stay, even amid this wreckage. It's like a stone weighing on my soul, he says. We built everything here with our own hands. It's hard to look at what those Russian scum did to us, he adds. A short distance away in newly liberated Kherson, a pool of blood where Russia is attacking the city it just left behind. Four were killed when this grocery store was hit. Now one desperate resident picks through the debris looting scraps of food and toilet paper. Is everything so bad, we asked. It's not good, he responds. All right, well, getting basic supplies, though, in Kherson has become a massive risk. We've come to the seaport. Well, it's the river port, really, right on the Dnieper River, with this woman here, Tatiana, from Kherson, to collect water so she can do her washing up and wash her clothes and go to the toilet and things like that. The water supplies have been completely cut off by the Russians. This is the only way, and you can hear the artillery shells going off still in the background, this is the only way she can get water for her house. And it's dangerous because this is basically the front line. The Russian forces have retreated to the, to the other bank, right? Ruski Staldati Tam. Tam Idali. Yeah. yeah, so the Russian forces are just across the river. But the risk is one that has to be taken. What can we do, Tatiana asks. We can't live without water. There's little electricity either, and people are cramming into makeshift charging stations like this one just to stay connected. We found defiance here too, in the face of hardship. There's no water or power, Hannah tells me, but also no Russians, so we'll get through this. What, what do you think? I think our enemies will all die soon, 
says Nastia, who's only just turned nine. We'll show them what you get for occupying Ukraine, she says. For many, the hardships are already too much. Roads out of Kherson cramped with residents trying to leave. But for those who stay, it is a desperate struggle to survive. Yeah, Jake, and that struggle continues because tonight the Kherson region and the city itself is still short of power and water and uh, making life very hard for the residents there who are leaving, as we saw in that report, in droves amid persistent Russian attacks on residential areas. In fact, the presidential administration within the past few hours has said that there have been 258 attacks on residential areas of Kherson uh, and the surrounding neighbourhood in the past week alone, making life there for ordinary people unbearable. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. With just over a week until the Georgia Senate runoff, the big political guns are descending on the Peach State, except one or two notable exceptions are missing. Who are they? That's fine. Find out next. In our politics lead, tens of thousands of voters cast ballots in the first and only weekend of early voting in the Georgia Senate race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. Today, early voting begins statewide after some counties got a head start. CNN's Eva McCann is in Atlanta, Georgia, where we are just learning about Donald Trump's plans for the runoff. Eva. Well, Jake, former President Donald Trump will not be campaigning for Herschel Walker. That is what we are learning tonight. He won't be coming here. He will hold a tele-rally for Walker like he has done for many Republican candidates. But we also have not heard about President Biden coming here in support of Senator Warnock as yet as well. Uh, former President Barack Obama will be here later this week uh, to stump for uh, Senator Warnock. I want to get to the numbers, though, because that is really where the news is tonight. So many Georgians coming out to vote early, more than 239,000 today alone across Georgia's 159 counties. Today was the first day by law that every county in the state was required to provide early voting. 87,000 on Sunday, more than 70,000 on Saturday. And this is potentially good for both Democrats and Republicans. Because when you talk about runoff elections, it's really a turnout game. And what we're seeing is that the electorate here is engaged. Take a listen to Gabe Sterling with the Secretary of State's office. We have never seen a Sunday that big. The previous record Sunday was October 25th of 2020, kind of a big election year. It was 37,000 voters. We saw nearly 90,000 voters yesterday, 130% more voters altogether. So that was a huge day. Saturday was nearly 80,000 voters. So it shows excitement about the race. It's a Senate race and we anticipate that. And then the lines today and the turnout today has been tremendous. We're in Atlanta at the Roxy Theater, where Senator Warnock is going to be joined on stage by the Dave Matthews Band, Herschel Walker campaigning in coming Georgia tonight. Jake. All right, Eva McKenna in Atlanta, thanks. And be sure to tune in next Tuesday for CNN special coverage of the Georgia runoff. We'll bring you the results as polls close. We'll be on all night. Uh, and let's talk about this. First of all, let me just say to the citizens of Georgia, whoever they're voting for, you know, great work. Good to see it. <laughs> Democracy. You love to see it. Um, can you, is there anything to be seen into who's voting and where they're voting as to, as to how this might go? Well, we know over the weekend it looked like 
because voting was optional in the counties and all the lawsuits and everything over that Saturday voting, most of the counties were Democratic-leaning, those larger, heavily Democratic counties. The Republican counties tend to be smaller. So going into this statewide early voting, you would think that Warnock had a little bit of an edge. But now that we see every county, all 159, there's robust turnout statewide, which you would expect because it's such a condensed period. So instead of having two weeks of early voting in multiple weekends, You've got one. And so it's clear that this is an option that voters enjoy. All right. Well, it's good to see. And, and Doug, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, uh, who cruised to victory uh, in, earlier this month over Stacey Abrams, uh, he's campaigning with um, Herschel Walker, even though he kind of Heismaned him during the uh, g- during the general election when they were <laughs> you both. You choose that randomly, did you? <laughs> <laughs> during during the during the uh, when they were both on the ballot. Uh, he's also featured in a new uh, Herschel Walker campaign ad. Take a look. We cannot rest on our laurels, everyone. You're going to decide who our senator is. This is going to be a turnout election. Who's more motivated? Is it them or us? Do you think it might work? Every election is a turnout election. We hear that every <laughs> every two years. But Brian Kemp had his own race to run, so he was doing what he had to do as a candidate. We saw some of that in Pennsylvania as well. And if you're running against Stacey Abrams, the amount of money she brought in means you might have cruised, but you couldn't have hit cruise control on your own own campaign. So he's... He's now putting the effort for Georgia Republicans, but Republicans are still nervous because, you know, in football, but also in, in politics, time of possession matters. And Herschel hasn't been on offense really since this uh, since we've moved to a runoff. He needs to get on offense very quickly. Brian Kemp is his best advocate to do so, much better than Donald Trump, who's staying away. Yeah, Donald Trump is staying away. I want to talk about that a lot to weigh in, too. And, but so is President Biden, at least as far as we know right now. Yeah, well, you know, I think you have a candidate and Senator Warnock who is running his race, who he knows what Georgia voters want to hear. Uh, The turnout game is what they are all playing. You know, their campaign is focused on door knocking. Their campaign is focused on that voter contact. And so... Thankfully, President Biden, uh, President Obama will be down there. Look, President Biden has a lot of work to do here in Washington, D.C., in this lame duck Congress. And so I I think they're being strategic about how they're getting support from uh, the current president and the previous president, Obama. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge for Walker is that there were clearly a lot of Republicans who showed up who couldn't stomach voting for him last time around just a couple weeks ago. Right. And they've got to figure out how to overcome that. Kemp is trying uh, to help them with that. I mean, I think I'm sure there are some voters out there who where control of the Senate on the line might actually be willing to be like, okay, I'm going to swallow my my doubts here. I think, if anything, the Democrats that I've talked to are more optimistic because this isn't the 50th seat. It's the 51st for Democrats. And and, uh, and the other big uh, topic right now in the political world uh, is Donald Trump uh, meeting, having dinner with uh, two notorious anti-Semites, Ye, a.k.a. Kanye West, and Nick uh, Fuentes. We just heard uh, that Vice President Pence uh, just criticized uh, Donald Trump for doing it. Um, very few Republican officials have done so. I, I guess I was told Thune and Cornyn, Senators Thune and Cornyn just did. You told me that uh, Ernst mm-hmm. and... I don't remember. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know there was going to be someone else. else. The point is, the point is, the point is it's, 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 you know, it's just a couple handfuls of them. It's not exactly a rush. But, 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 but Mike Pence uh, uh, did. He said, uh, well, let's take a look. President Trump was wrong uh, uh, to give a a white nationalist, uh, uh, an anti-Semite, and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. And uh, I think he should apologize for it, uh, and he should denounce uh, 
those individuals uh, uh, and their hateful rhetoric without qualification. I mean, I have to say credit where credit's due. That is one of the strongest condemnations I've heard from a non Cheney, Kinzinger, Republican. I mean, part of me is looking at that and thinking, when did it become so hard to say what Mike Pence just said? It Mm -hmm. seems like what we all should be saying (laughs) all of the time. But the reality is he's out there almost by himself right now among Republicans. Chris Christie did, I should say. Chris Christie did as well, yes. I mean, but as, as I guess I should say... He's out there almost by himself as someone who has otherwise been willing to embrace Trumpian politics at certain turns. Obviously, they had a break after January 6th. But, you know, he's not an anti-Trump Republican across the board. Um, And we're not seeing a lot of other people do it. And good for him. Right. What I thought was interesting is even some of the Republicans, when they put out statements, they criticize like, no, we don't believe in anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism and racism has no place. But they did not make the bridge to say, and therefore Trump was wrong. <laughs> right, they right, made no more names. Yeah, no names and right. just broad, generally generalized statements. And so for Pence to say Trump was wrong for meeting with anti Well, they've gone, a, they've gone along with it for the longest because it was politically advantageous for them. At this point, it's not. And so they are going to come out and talk about why we shouldn't have meet with anti-Semites. But at the same time, they're being kind of careful with how much they're going to talk about Trump because they might need him to win future elections. Republicans have, could have said everything that Mike Pence said so many times because these, these groups and these extremists have had a place at the Trump table, whether it's in the White House or the hotel or wherever else, for a long time. Yeah. But they're operating, think of House Republican politics right now, they're operating in an atmosphere where they know that Donald Trump is not somebody who gives points. He only takes them away one at a time. And if you want to survive... You're still playing the Trump game, and Trump knows that. So what I think is the most interesting about what Pence is doing here is that he is setting the stage for what we know is going to be an intense Republican primary fight with the former president. And over and over and over again, we have seen people who have taken the tact of not going after Trump directly. They tried to do it in 2016. They all got hit over and over and over again. And people have been very careful about how they've engaged with him. This says to me that Mike Pence is making a decision for how he is going to engage with the former president. And it is, quite frankly, a different approach than the one Pence took even as recently as campaigning in the midterm elections. Now, maybe this is just an issue that's so beyond the pale to him. Remember, this is a very personally religious man who, uh, you know, remember, evangelicals have very close ties to Israel very often. I think a lot about the Jewish people in the context of our politics and other things like that. So perhaps that's what's driving Mike Pence here. I uh, but I think strategically, it's a really interesting choice. I, I don't. I don't. I want to give him more credit than that. I don't think it's just a. I'm pro-Israel because uh, evangelicals want me to be. I mean, that's that's. A, it seems like a very just like moral. No, yeah. I mean, I think for most evangelicals, I think for most evangelicals, it's a moral. It's right. a moral connection. Right. But I'm, I'm not saying, trying I'm not... to say that the evangelical piece of this is political. Yeah, no. He is making a calculation, though, which is, I am just going to say the starkest, bravest thing I can say about okay. this, and we'll see what happens. But yeah. he is differentiating himself because other Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, like they, we haven't heard yet, yet, anything from them publicly. They've had several right. days, to be clear. They've, it's, it's been six days since it happened, and I guess it was Friday that it was reported. Right, right. And, and they should be saying something. It shouldn't be what happened with Trump. Honestly, he wouldn't have said anything had Kanye not put out a video. People started talking about this meeting. And so it will be interesting to see where a lot of Republican leaders will fall in this. Will they fall in the Mike Pence camp, or will they toe the line trying to think of their political future? Yeah. All right. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. No arrests, no suspects announced, no weapon. 
A killer remains on the loose two weeks after four college students were murdered inside their apartment. And now students are returning to campus. Do they feel safe? Stay with us. Thousands of students are returning to the University of Idaho's campus today, even though a killer remains on the loose. It has been two weeks since four University of Idaho students were killed. Police have not yet made an arrest. They have not yet named a suspect. They have not yet, as far as we know, found the weapon. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live for us in Moscow, Idaho. Veronica, what's being done to address any safety concerns that students might have? Well, Jake, for those who are returning back to campus today, there is a heavy police presence, whether it's hired security or patrol officers. They're just trying to make students feel a little bit more comfortable. The University of Idaho is also allowing students to stay at home for the rest of the semester. There's two weeks left of classes, and so if students want to stay at home, they can learn virtually. They're not tracking how many students have stayed at home uh, so far. They're letting them come and go as they please. But based on our conversations with students around campus, it does seem like people are taking Uh, advantage of this opportunity. I just know that if I stayed home, I wouldn't get any work done. Um, Plus, I feel safe in my dorm. I know a lot of people don't, but, you know, there's two doors you have to get through. It's kind of quiet. Most people are friendly, but now it's just kind of, um, I don't know, people are kind of sketched out, not really aware of the situation. Does the campus feel emptier? Yes, definitely, definitely. That sense of fear and uncertainty is certainly understandable. It's not just police that are trying to make students feel comfortable. A former University of Idaho student has actually raised $19,000 to buy personal security devices for students. Everyone pitching in, trying to do what they can. Jake? Where does the investigation stand as far as we know? Well, the Moscow Police Department hasn't released anything in the last few days. They say that they're making progress. They've received about a 1,000 tips, and a third of those are security videos and images, and they're asking for more surveillance images. But still, no new information about a suspect, a motive, why this happened, and who could have done it. Jake? Veronica Miracle in Idaho. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The white man accused of killing 10 people, all of them black, and injuring a dozen more in the racist shooting rampage at a grocery store in Buffalo pleaded guilty to state charges today. 19-year-old Peyton Gendron admitted guilt to multiple murder charges and hate-motivated terrorism charges. The guilty plea means he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Back in July, you might remember, he pleaded not guilty to separate federal hate crimes and firearms charges that could have carried the death penalty if he had been convicted of those. Iran is now demanding that the United States be expelled from the World Cup tournament after U.S. soccer gets a little political. That's ahead. In our world lead now, 2022 is not yet even over. Hell, it's not even December. And it's already already the deadliest year for the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank in decades, according to a CNN analysis. And that does not include Palestinians killed in Gaza, the site of several wars between Israel and Hamas, or Israelis killed by Hamas rocket fire. As CNN's Hadass Gold reports, you have to go back to the final years of the Second Intifada, 2004-2005, to find a death count higher than this year's in Israel and the West Bank. These have become frequent images this year across Israel and the Palestinian territories. 
Funerals last week in Nablus for 16-year-old Ahmed Amjad Shehade and in Jerusalem for 15-year-old Canadian-Israeli Arya Shupak, both killed on Wednesday on their way to school. In another world, they might have been classmates. But here, they are the latest victims of a decades-old conflict that is rearing its head to new heights. With a month left to go, 2022 is already the deadliest year for Palestinians and Israelis across Israel and the West Bank since the early 2000s, according to a CNN analysis of official numbers from both Israel and the Palestinian Authority, setting off alarm across the world. I hope that Israeli and Palestinian authorities take the search for dialogue to heart in a greater way, building reciprocal trust without which there will never be a solution for peace in the Holy Land. 150 Palestinian combatants and civilians have been killed so far this year in the occupied West Bank and Israel, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. While Israel says most of the Palestinians killed were militants or engaging violently with their soldiers, human rights groups say dozens of unarmed civilians have been caught up as well. The Israeli government says 31 Israelis and foreigners have been killed in Palestinian attacks, a number that includes soldiers and civilians, during shootings, stabbings and rammings. And then last Wednesday, twin bombings killed two in Jerusalem, a type of attack not seen in years. The UN's Middle East envoy warning that the situation is running out of control. Mounting hopelessness, anger and tension have once again erupted into a deadly cycle of violence that is increasingly difficult to contain. That hopelessness partly a result of a politics on both sides that seem as far apart as ever. An increasingly unpopular Palestinian authority. Its aging leader Mahmoud Abbas recently pilloried for attending the World Cup, while new militant groups rise up at home, claiming to be the true representatives of the Palestinian street. And in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu soon to take power once again, but this time with a sharp turn to the right, alongside coalition partners like Itamar Ben-Gvir and other far-right settlers who have called for an even stronger response to Palestinian attacks and are vehemently opposed to the two-state solution, as the violence on the ground continues with no end in sight. And Jake, Netanyahu is still forming its government, but he's already announced that Itamar Ben-Gvir himself, once convicted of anti-Arab racism, will take over a newly created role called National Security Minister. That will put him in charge of police in both Israel and some policing in the West Bank. This is a situation that the outgoing Defense Minister Benny Gantz has called a sure recipe for harming security, one that he said will cost people's lives. Jake. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem. Thanks so much for that report. Coming up in our sports lead, Iran throwing shade at the U.S. off the field ahead of tomorrow's World Cup showdown. Stay with us. Politics is dominating the upcoming World Cup match between the United States and Iran. The United States Soccer Federation erased the Islamic regime emblem from the Iranian flag in a social media post trying to show support for the women protesting in the streets of Iran for basic human rights. In response, Iran, and its very fragile ego apparently, called for the United States to be expelled from the World Cup. Today, the U.S. team manager tried to bring the focus back to the game itself. The staff, the players had no idea. Of course, our thoughts and um, our people, the whole, the whole country, the whole team, everyone, but our focus is on this match. USA Today sports columnist Christine Brennan is here. Christine, were you surprised by the team manager's response today? I was. You know, own it. Uh, To be able to say that you're 
for the Iranian people, you're for Iranian women, uh, you are for the protesters, that's a good thing. And I was surprised uh, that the U.S. coach basically you know, walked it back because it's already been out there. It's the U.S. national team, the men's national team. It's U.S. soccer. They have, this has been their whole World Cup. It's been about issues, about um, talking about societal change, talking about political issues. There's no reason to back away from it now. So that did surprise me. A yeah, lot. and this isn't politics like tax policy, or <laughs> right? I mean, this is about whether or not uh, women in Iran have basic human rights, uh, whether the regime is correct for shooting protesters, peaceful protesters in the street. It's not politics per se. Oh, w- without a doubt. I mean, he, the U.S. is on the right side of this issue. Uh, U.S. soccer has been on the right side of this issue. Frankly, Jake, when the Iranian team did not sing its national anthem in its first match, it was also protesting. So, so the U.S. is actually on the side of the Iranian team right. in the sense that they're, they're protesting. And, of course, this is a U.S. men's national team that willingly gave up money so that the women would have equal pay. That was earlier this year. There, there are a lot of issues that these guys are on the right side. Yeah, own your righteousness, for God's sake. <laughs> exactly. A security source tells CNN, you talked about the Iranian team not singing the national anthem, presumably protesting the regime, mm-hmm. uh, supporting the people in the streets. Security source tells CNN Iran has threatened the families of the national soccer team. Um, how does that impact them, do you think? I think when they go home, uh, that's not a good situation. And what courage they showed in not singing that anthem, knowing that. They knew that from the get-go. They, they didn't have to be told that. They knew that they would, could be in jeopardy. Uh, obviously, whoever wins this big match tomorrow, Iran or the United States, the winner moves on to the round of 16. The loser goes home. The U.S., of course, and American sports fans, many watching us right now, they don't want the U.S. to lose. But think about what happens when the Iranian team goes home and faces uh, potential penalties, who knows, punishment, what they're going to get for having protested that first, uh, that first match. So Jason Rezaian, uh, he's the Washington uh, Post journalist who was imprisoned in Iran, unfairly, now free, thankfully. Uh, he writes, quote, This moment deserves attention, and no global stage is bigger than the World Cup. Billions will be watching. The longer Iran stays in, the more recognition its people and their movement will receive. Uh, obviously, again, we're all rooting for Team USA here uh, at the lead, but... Does that motivate the Iranian players, do you think? Do you think that we need to stay in this because we represent uh, Iranian pride, but not pride in the regime, pride in who we really are? I think it does motivate them. And frankly, you'd probably ask the U.S. players, they want to win desperately. But the idea of having the spotlight, that glare of that spotlight, Jake, focusing on these issues for another few days, that would be fantastic. And of course, being in Qatar, all of these issues in that country, LGBTQ rights, the migrant workers and all the, the people who were killed building these stadiums, having to have the uh, event in December, in November, December, not in the summer because of the heat, uh, the money that was paid under the table. Um, all of these issues come to light when you do have an event like this in that location, just to say the Beijing Olympics, you and I and others were talking about human rights in Beijing back in February because the Olympics were there. So I do think that the location and the fact that you can stay in that spotlight as long as possible can be very helpful. What's at stake for the U.S. in this, in this match? You know, the U.S. men have obviously not been as good as the U.S. women, and they would like to be able to say, hey, we've moved on to the round of 16. They've done it before, but it's been a while. Uh, it's a young team. It's uh, a new generation of American men who are very much pro-women, 
pro-social uh, issues, cultural issues, and I think that they, uh, they would love to make a statement on the field as well. It's great to see soccer uh, bringing attention to these issues of freedom and equality. Christine Brennan, good to see you. you as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with Brianna Keeler, who's in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.